Tilbury Docks, June 1948. The ship, the Empire Windrush, arrives in London from the West Indies, bringing one of the first large groups of post-war immigrants. And among them is Aldwin Roberts, better known as the Calypsonian Lord Kitchener. He wrote this song on the ship and then performed it for the Pathé newsreel cameras as he arrived. You may recognize the song. It was later used in the film Paddington. Kitchener's Calypso focused on the welcome he felt the Windrush generation immigrants would receive from the British people as they arrived to rebuild a nation devastated by war. And in return, they would be treated as part of the country they had come to help. But more than six decades on, it became clear that was not the case. Mr. Speaker, as this review makes clear, some members of this generation suffered terrible injustices, spurred by institutional failings spanning successive governments over several decades. Lives were ruined and families were torn apart. That was the Home Secretary, Preeti Patel, earlier this year. She was apologising on behalf of the government for the Home Office's institutional ignorance and thoughtlessness in the way that it had dealt with the Windrush generation. Because far from that feeling of hope on that June day in 1948, it turned out that those who'd come to help had found themselves in recent years denied even the basic rights of the citizenship that they had been assured of. People had been sacked from their jobs or told that they would have to pay tens of thousands of pounds for cancer treatment, even though they'd been paying taxes in, in this country for 40 years. Beyond that, many found themselves threatened with deportation, back to countries they hadn't seen in decades. Politicians like Labour MP David Lammy stood up in the House of Commons to express his disgust when this was finally exposed. When my parents and their generation arrived in this country under the Nationality Act of 1948, they arrived here as British citizens. It is inhumane and cruel for so many of that Windrush generation to have suffered so long in this condition and for the Secretary of State only to have made a statement today on this issue. And I want to apologise to you today because we are genuinely sorry for any anxiety that has been caused. That was the then Prime Minister, Theresa May, apologising to Caribbean leaders who were similarly shocked. But why was it that thousands of those from the Windrush generation found themselves in appalling situations where the certainties of their life in the UK were put under threat? And what changed so that their stories were finally heard? This was the dirty secret that the Home Office had kept for the longest time. I just think it, it says we're the least important people in this country. Honestly, they couldn't, they could not give a stuff what happens within the Windrush generation. I do think it is remarkable that, that so many people were experiencing such incredibly catastrophic things to their, threatened their whole existences. Welcome to the Know How Podcast special five-part series, Reporting Injustice. This is a series where we look at some of the key stories in recent years that were turning points in how we saw some fundamental issues. 
We talked to the journalists who uncovered them about their struggles to bring these stories to public view. And we speak to experts who explain how these reports altered the way society perceived pressing matters of race, class and sexism. From Windrush to Bill Cosby, Grenfell to missing and murdered Indigenous women, Reporting Injustice looks at the stories behind the stories. In this episode, we're looking at one of the biggest stories in the British media in the past few years, the uncovering of the Windrush scandal by the Guardian journalist Amelia Gentleman. We'll be talking to Amelia about how the story came to light and why branding it a certain way was so important. We're also talking to the journalist and anti-racism campaigner Yasmin Alibi-Brown and Dr. Juanita Cox, who carried out the oral history project into the Windrush generation at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies. This particular story happened in a way that could have been so easily missed. One email amongst hundreds that a busy national newspaper journalist receives every day. I was actually on holiday and checking emails on my phone and the subject heading in the email that I had from a a charity called the Refugee and Migrant Centre in Wolverhampton was so disturbing that it it made me open it um, straight away and it said, you know, help needed imminent deportation of a woman who has lived in Britain for 50 years. Amelia Gentleman recalls the moment that she stumbled across a story that would become a national scandal, resulting in an apology from the Prime Minister and a resignation from the Home Secretary. It would also raise fundamental questions about racism in Britain in the 21st century. The email referred to a woman called Paulette Wilson, a law-abiding grandmother aged 60 who'd been arrested, sent to an immigration removal centre and threatened with deportation. When they took me to this place near the airport, this morning I woke up and I thought literally I was going to be put on a plane. As gentleman was to find out, Paulette Wilson's experiences were far from a one-off. Rather, they were increasingly common for a generation of people who had arrived in Britain from former colonies. Paris is the arrival of more than 400 happy Jamaicans. They've come to seek work in Britain and are ready and willing to do any kind of job that will help the motherland along the road to prosperity. They're all full of hope for the future, so let's make them very welcome as they begin their new life over here. After the Second World War ended, Britain desperately needed workers to rebuild the country. The transport system and the newly created National Health Service were especially short-handed. In 1948, the government passed the Nationality Act, which gave Commonwealth citizens the right to settle in Britain. On the 22nd of June that year, the Empire Windrush arrived at Tilbury from Jamaica. The new arrivals frequently faced racism, poverty and challenges. But they saw the UK as their home and never questioned that they had the right to stay here until it became clear that there was a problem. I didn't really understand myself what, what was going wrong. And I think it, was, it wasn't at all clear to begin with what the scale of it was. There wasn't an enormous high level of understanding of what the hostile environment was or what the Home Office was doing. I think we understand that generally a lot better now. We want to ensure that only legal migrants have access to the labour market, free health services, housing, bank accounts and driving licences. And this is not just about making the UK a more hostile place for illegal migrants, it is also about fairness. Back in 2012, Theresa May was Home Secretary. She was clear that she was going to be tough on illegal migrants, creating a so-called hostile environment. 
This meant not only proving themselves when they entered the country, but also to prove their immigration status whenever they tried to rent a property, open a bank account, or access the health services. The problem was that the Windrush generation were here legally, but had not always been given the paperwork to prove it, as in the case of Paulette Wilson. As soon as Gentleman published her story, she discovered Wilson was far from alone. Within hours of publication, I began to get emails and phone calls from people who had either themselves or knew other people um, who had been similarly affected. And how unusual was that? How often when you write a story, do you get that kind of immediate response? It was quite unusual. What was also unusual was that even amongst those who'd worked to combat racism for many years, there was a lack of knowledge of the problems the Windrush generation were facing. The media coverage was vital, as Dr Juanita Cox and Yasmin Alibi-Brown make clear. I think for me personally, it was definitely Amelia's coverage yeah, in The Guardian. I mean, I've been aware that there have been deportations of people from the Windrush generation over the decades, but that it hasn't been particularly visible. And I think because it hadn't been visible, it wasn't clear that it was a consistent problem. This was the dirty secret that the Home Office had kept for the longest time. What we didn't know is that those original people who were invited over to rebuild this country, who were in every sense British except for skin colour, were being retrospectively punished for rebuilding this country. It was such a shocking story, even for a nation well known for its very, very duplicitous attitude towards migrants. The consequences of the hostile environment approach for the Windrush generation were often catastrophic. With no paperwork to prove their status in Britain, this often affected their chances of getting or keeping a job, their health care and family life. People had been sacked from their jobs or told that they would have to pay tens of thousands of pounds for cancer treatment, even though they'd been paying taxes in, in this country for 40 years. Some people were made homeless. A lot of people were unable to get pensions and unable to get passports, which meant that they weren't able to travel to see their their parents who perhaps had retired back to the Caribbean and, and so, you know, missed seeing, seeing them before they, they died. So really, really serious and a kind of catastrophic consequences. For commentators like Yasmin Alibi-Brown, it was hard not to conclude that there was racism here. Caribbeans, in spite of the slave history, were actually incredibly loyal to this country. They felt... They were part of it. It was their motherland. And they were very polite and courteous. And their hearts were broken over and over. If you look at the official figures, there are more American settlers in Britain than there are Jamaicans. When people say to me, it's not about race, it is about race. It has always been about race. But while the injustices seemed immediately shocking, in retrospect, this was not a story that was easy to tell. It took gentlemen many months for the stories to have impact. It was really, really difficult. And I remember feeling incredibly frustrated because it was 
difficult to get people to go on the record and talk about their experiences to begin with. It, it was hard to find people who were able to explain what the what the issue was. As well as it being difficult to get people to go on the record, in media terms, it was also difficult to sell such a complex story. It was an incredibly complicated thing to explain because it was only later that it, it kind of acquired a branding as a, a Windrush problem. Initially, every article that I wrote said that this was a problem that affected people who'd been born in the Commonwealth in the 1960s and 1950s and, and travelled here as young children and who were encountering immigration problems as they approached retirement. And that's a difficult thing to put in an intro or to put into a headline. And so um, it, it was... It was kind of hard to explain to people what, what the problem was that I was writing about and hard sometimes to explain to news editors. While The Guardian continued to publish stories about those affected, the story really took off thanks to an activist called Patrick Vernon. He'd been campaigning for an annual Windrush Day for several years. And he made the connection that it was the same cohort of people or their children um, who were having all of these immigration problems. And he launched a petition and that got a lot of online attention. That really sort of captured, I think, the public imagination because suddenly everybody could identify, okay, it's this, this particular cohort of people who I think most people recognise they were just British. So it was easier to separate that from being sort of immigrants. As Juanita Cox makes clear, the branding of this story as the Windrush generation brought the story to the top of the news agenda at The Guardian. However, other media organisations did not really touch the story until The Guardian broke the news that Commonwealth leaders had asked to meet Theresa May to discuss it. But her staff had said there was no time in her schedule. It was such an obvious snub and appeared to have kind of racist undertones that this became a front page story for The Guardian and then finally it was kind of picked up by other media and for a while it became an international story but it was remarkable how long the kind of refusal to acknowledge this problem continued. As a result of the story Theresa May met the Caribbean leaders and apologized to them and the Home Secretary Amber Rudd apologized in the House of Commons but this was not the end of the story. In another scoop, gentlemen revealed that an archive of landing cards, which could have been crucial in proving the Windrush generation's rights, had been destroyed in 2010. The Guardian was focused on keeping up pressure on the government. For a while, large part of the Guardian newsroom was all working on this. It was, yeah, it was really, really great because there was this kind of huge understanding from editors and from my colleagues that this was you know, really important. They, they put the story on the front page every day, I think, for, for two weeks, which is almost unprecedented. And there was real commitment that to not to allow the government to kind of apologise and, and move on. Well, Downing Street says it has just accepted the resignation of its Home Secretary. Amber Rudd was in the spotlight as the controversy deepened around how her office treated members of the so-called Windrush generation. The two weeks culminated with the Home Secretary resigning after a colleague of gentlemen's discovered that she had misled MPs over targets for removing undocumented immigrants. But the Windrush generation story was far from finished. Juanita Cox. The thing that people aren't aware of is they sort of think, okay, you get your passport and then you go along your way. But 
the reality is the vast majority of people I know who have got had their paperwork sorted out are still living in poverty. You know, there are people who, who are living in empty houses, you know, whether they're sleeping on floors or but they haven't got any furniture or, or still sleeping in their daughter's sitting room or something. The Winterish generation who'd been mistreated were allowed to apply for compensation. But this was a far from straightforward procedure. High levels of documentary proof were needed and by the end of the first year of the scheme, only 60 people had been given compensation. I just think it, it says we're the least important people in this country. Honestly, they couldn't, they could not give us stuff what happens within the Windrush generation. To belong to the Windrush generation for a start, if you would have to, or, or to be a, a child, somebody who arrived as a child, you'd be like at least 50, if not 60 and above. They're all people who are in a vulnerable age group. So the fact that you're not treating compensation as something urgent kind of signifies something quite, to me, quite sinister. What does the Windrush generation story tell us about how the media cover race? How is it that the story managed to stay untold for so long? For Amelia Gentleman, the problem is not only with diversity at a national level, but also a local level. And I think part of the problem was around the the kind of collapse of local journalism, actually. So I'm not sure whether that's so much a kind of issue of, of diversity in the media, but certainly the, the disappearance of local newspapers or local outlets where people could go and say, this has happened to me, please listen. I think that's really um, problematic. For Juanita Cox, however, once the story's out there, it was only fair to give the media the credit that they deserve. So far, I'm, I've been really impressed with the media and I've been working on this project at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies, interviewing people who've been affected. And I'm yet to come across a case where the media haven't been involved. I mean, literally everybody I've interviewed so far managed to get their status sorted out because they spoke to ITV or Channel 4 or even somebody in Trinidad spoke to CNN. They've been really central to helping force the, force the government's hand on, on resolving the situation. For Yasmin Elibai Brown, while the Windrush generation coverage was positive, the way that media respond to stories about race is still deeply problematic, as was seen this summer with the Black Lives Matter movement. For more ethical journalists, they have to ask themselves some really serious questions. In the last many weeks, people have been ringing me saying, oh, can you come on the programme and and debate whether a statue should be broken or we should get rid of this or the road name and, and, and we'll have somebody opposing you. And I said to them, racism is not a point of view. This is not a point of view to debate. It is a wrong how can I be illegal? I don't understand that word at all. When I got the letter, I thought, am I British? What am I? And I couldn't even answer that in my head. Paulette Wilson talking to The Guardian there. The woman whose story sparked off the whole scandal died unexpectedly in July 2020. Nearly three years on from the scandal breaking, others have also died while waiting for this to be resolved, and many more are still waiting for compensation. And for the journalist who broke the story, where does it go now? 
I was lucky enough to be given some time off by my employers to write a book about it. So I absolutely didn't want to, to move on from it. And the kind of really sad thing is that it remains a very topical issue. I think kind of two years ago, when there were all of these apologies and commitments to sort, sort this out, I would have been very depressed to think that in two years, um, so much would remain unresolved. There is still a lot to cover in this area. Thank you for listening to The Know How and the second in our special series, Reporting Injustice. It was presented by Dr. Lindsay Blumel and Dr. Glenda Cooper and produced by Atina Dimitrova. For more information, please go to our website, thenowhowpodcast.com, or follow us on Twitter at KnowHowPodcast or on Facebook at The Know How Podcast. In our next episode, I sent the Freedom of Information request to every council in the country asking um, uh, for all the fire risk assessments for their council tower blocks. Just going through those and tallying up all the issues was really alarming. Grenfell was obviously a horrific example, but it was a horrific example of a much wider problem. We look at the Grenfell Tower disaster of 2017 and how an investigative journalist found out that the problems that caused that tragedy were prevalent across the whole of the country.